Today we launch out on a new series here at Rich Point Church. Chris already referenced it a little bit, but we're talking about what is the point? What's the point behind some of the stuff that we do? Over the course of the last several months, we've gotten into some heavier subjects. We had the previous series before the one we just finished was a series on the creed. We talked about the doctrine of the church. And let me be honest with you up front, there's a little bit of me that, that loves that kind of stuff. Uh, I grew up, I didn't go to church a whole lot growing up, but when I got into college, it was, became a major, was in, uh, was in theology, and then eventually wanted to get a master's in Christian studies. And so part of me still has that little like theology nerd inside of me that I like that kind of stuff. And so we talk about things like the creed of the church and what we believe. That's really important, I believe, in the integrity of, of what we believe and all that stuff. And then the past four weeks we talked about, uh, past five weeks we talked about kind of origins and, and, and some patriarchs of our faith and what that meant for us. And I love that side of it, but I just as much love, if not more, today we begin a series that's a vision series. And when we talk about a vision, whether it's in a church setting, whether it's in a corporate setting, whether it's even in a family, there's something powerful when we can have a vision as an entity. Here we're talking about a church, but whatever it is, when we have a vision and when a group of people can galvanize behind that vision and move forward, there's something powerful about it. If, if you're a family leader, if you're a parent and you say, okay, as, as a family, here's our vision. And, and if, if the, the rest of the family buys into that vision, there's something powerful about that. When, when, a, corporate, uh, when, a, when a corporation gets that right or when a business gets that right and the people, their employees start to buy into the vision, there's something powerful about that. And when we gather together as the church and we say, listen, here's our overall vision. And if every one of us that's here on a consistent basis buys into that vision, if we galvanize around that vision, there's something powerful and so much more can be accomplished because of the power of the people that was in this room and the people that was in the first service. And so I love this because scripture even talks about vision. It says for lack of vision, the people perish or the people are unrestrained. Meaning if we don't have vision, if we don't have something to galvanize around and really get focused on, then we kind of kind of do our own thing. We're not that passionate about it. But if we can lay out on a consistent basis, here's our vision, here's what we want to accomplish. And if every one of us buys into that vision, then there's something powerful that can take place through that. And so that's why if you're new here, you'll hear a message like this and it'll be like the first time you've heard some of this. If you've been going to Rich Point for a while, we bring these messages up from time to time, specifically to serve as a reminder, we have to continue to remember why we do the very things that we do. And so what's the point, asks this val- valuable question, what's the point behind some of the things that we do as a church? Because I'm going to be honest, the church at times can do some goofy things. Who's ever been part of a church, you, sh- you know they did some goofy things they probably shouldn't have done? No, it's just, just me, I guess. Okay, there's one person. Hey, listen, first service, like everybody's like, yeah, I understand entirely. Sometimes a church can, can do goofy things, and, and sometimes it's on accident, sometimes it's on purpose. And, 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 and when it's not accident, it's kind of understandable. Sometimes we're human, we're fallible, we make mistakes. Uh, we get up and maybe we, we misspeak or, or, you know, someone gets up on stage, they're playing a chord, they hit the wrong chord or they sing the wrong lyric. We can f- understand and forgive mistakes. If a person's a, a door holder and, and they let go of the door and it hits you in the backside, it might be harder to forgive. But we can understand there are people too, they make mistakes and, and, and we forgive them. But, but when it's intentional, when it's on purpose... It's much, much tougher to forgive. And so the series is about what happens, why, why do some of the things we do? Because when it's, when it's unintentional, for instance, the best story I've ever heard about this was a friend of mine that I went to college with. Now, when I was in college, I was a typical college student, but my friend Rick was much, much older than the rest of us. 
Now, I say he was much, much older. He wasn't old because he was my age now. But he was, he was, he was 40 years old, and, and he was going back to college. He kind of had lived his life his own way. At 40 years old, felt called to ministry, and he came back and hanging out with all those, us 20-year-olds. 20, 20 and so Rick and I, he was a really nice guy, and we became friends. We had a lot of classes together. And Rick started to share some stories. And what I started to see was Rick was, was phenomenal at two things. Either he's phenomenal putting himself in situations where things just happen to him, but he's also phenomenal in creating situations where things happen to him. He used to say stuff uh, all the time where he'd put his foot in his mouth, and I'd say, Rick, you'd have been better off. Like, I know you had a funny thought. You should have kept it contained in your thought process and not actually verbalized it. And some of you know friends like that. And Rick would say stuff like during chapel, the speaker would be speaking, and as he'd speak, he'd say something. And Rick was so witty and it was so funny, he had to let it out. And the speaker would hear it start laughing and couldn't finish up his message. Like, he was just one of those guys who put himself in bad situations, but also bad situations just happened to him. For instance, prior to his calling to ministry, when he was really young, uh, Rick, was, Rick was going to church with his family. His family is from a Catholic background. And so he was going to Catholic church, and, and he kind of got more involved than his parents did a little bit, and eventually he became an altar boy in a Catholic church. And he had a series of, of mistakes that he had, even as a young altar boy. But somehow, still, he made it up to the spot of being the head altar boy in, in, the, in the church that he was at. Which meant that during the service, he had specific responsibilities that he had to carry out as part of the service. Now, understand, if you've never been to a Catholic church before, they take communion very seriously. It's a serious thing, we understand that. But they, get, they take it very seriously. There's no cutting up. There's, there's no humor during that. It's a very serious thing. And so one of the days, one of the early days when Chris came on, uh, when, when Rick came on as the, as the head altar boy, he's up there. And as the head altar boy, his responsibility was to ring a bell three different times during the celebration of, of the communion in their mass. There were three different times that Rick had to ring the bell. And so Rick's over here, and this is one of the things that can only happen to, to Rick. He's up here, and he's doing all the stuff that he's supposed to do, getting everything set up. And it comes to the spot where he's supposed to ring the bell. And he rings the bell for the first time. And the clapper on the inside of the bell falls out. Now, you could ring a bell a million times. And 999,999 times, it's not going to happen. But it only happens to Rick Lanou. But he rings the bell and the clapper falls out. And he looks over the other altar boy like, what am I supposed to do right now? And the other altar boy looks at him and says, I don't know what to do. And it's like a very serious, somber moment. And so Rick's like trying to think because real quickly, the priest is in front of him. And the priest is about to lift up the hose, which means he's supposed to ring the bell seconds after that first bell ringing. And so Rick's looking around like, what do I do? And the, and the priest lifts up the host, and Rick blurts out, ding-a-ling-a-ling, and yells it out in the church. <laughs> and, and, and the priest is sitting there like, what just happened? Like, 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 like seriously, and, and this was just kind of what he did over and over and over again. Listen, when, when people make mistakes in the church, we can often forgive them. The priest might not have forgiven Rick so quickly, but the, the, we can often forgive people because we realize, man, people are fallible. People make mistakes. But when the church intentionally does stuff, and we don't understand it, we come away saying, I, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. And so because of that, sometimes people leave offended and hurt, or they leave mostly confused, saying, I don't understand why they did that. Why was that such a big deal? Now listen, as I approach the Bible, as I approach the teachings of Jesus, there's a lot that he teaches us to do as a church that isn't always easily understandable. And so because of that, when we do those things as a church, when we take communion as a church, which is a serious thing, we're very careful because if there's someone coming in for the first time who's never been to church before, they might say, what is it that they're doing? I don't fully understand it. So we want to take time and explain what that is about. 
And this series is kind of one of those moments where we want, we want to say, hey, here are four pillars of things that we kind of do as a church. And we want to spend some time talking about why we do some of those things. What's the point behind doing those things? And the first one we're going to talk about today is this idea of what's the point behind our strategy for reaching people is summed up in two words. It's summed up in these words, build and bring. What's the point behind build and bring? Understand this. When we say we want to reach people, we are never going to be the type of church that tells you, go grab a, a, a big Bible like this and drive in your car and, and drive up behind people and hit them in the head with the Bible. We don't think that's effective. That doesn't work. And so our strategy is to say, listen, the number one thing that we can do is we can care about our community. We can care about the people that, that we're living, that we're working with, that, that, that are in our families. We, we care about those people and we pour in their lives. We build up relationships and then as we build up relationships, we earn the equity to be able to bring them to church and ultimately to bring them to Jesus. Like, that's our strategy of, of church growth. So, so why do we do that? What's the point behind all of that? If you have your Bibles open, open up to the book of Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the story. And I love this story in the book of Acts. Uh, we're looking at the book of Acts because the history of the early church is found in the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are, are the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, those are called the Gospels. And those are the stories of the life of Jesus. His life, his death, and his resurrection. About the point of his resurrection, those Gospels leave off. We pick up in the book of Acts, with Jesus still here on earth, about to ascend into heaven. And the rest of the book of Acts is the history of the early church. It's the history of kind of, here, here's what the early church was doing. Now, mind you, these are relatively, for the most part, all of them are relatively new believers in Jesus. They didn't have any church growth experts teach them, here's what you're supposed to do in church. Today we have all these experts, guys like Tom Rainer and, and, and others that say, hey, here's what your church should do and here's what, all this stuff. And they didn't have that. What they had was they had a group of people who said, we know that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And we know what he's done in our life. And we think it's a really good idea to do two things. We should gather together to celebrate that on a weekly basis. And we should also try to add to people on a regular basis to let them know about the good news of Jesus. And that's all they did. Like, they didn't have anybody telling them, here's what you should do, and here's how to reach people. They said, I know Jesus changed my life, and I want him to change other people's lives. Let's gather together, celebrate, and let's go reach people. And they kept doing that. And thousands and thousands of people, in a very short amount of time, are giving their life to Jesus. One of those stories is found in the book of Acts chapter 4. And as I go through this, we're going to kind of read through the story real quick. And as we read through it, there's three things that I want to kind of pull out from this uh, that the gospel does. The gospel is a message of Jesus. We talk about the gospel. We talk about how powerful it is. If you're a note taker, three things the gospel does. So Acts chapter 4, verse, beginning in verse 1, it says this. And as they, this is Peter and John, uh, to the disciples, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple... So these are two leaders in the religious community in the temple. The priests are gathered there. They're religious leaders. And there's also the captain of the temple who was the second in command underneath the high priest. So you have the high priest is number one. And then you have the captain of the temple is number two. So the priests and the captain of the temple are there. The number two man at the temple are there. And they're kind of watching what Peter and John are, are doing. They're paying attention to all of this, taking it all in. And the second group of people that's there is the Sadducees came upon them. So there's this religious elite, the priest and the second command in the temple, and there's also the Sadducees. 
If you followed all the life of Jesus, you'll know he continued uh, throughout his ministry. He had about three and a half years of earthly ministry. During that ministry, there were two groups of people that continually went after Jesus. The Pharisees, who were the upper echelon, the religious elite. And this other group of people that we see here called the Sadducees. The Sadducees weren't at all like the Pharisees. In fact, they didn't get along at all, except for the fact that neither group liked Jesus. That's the one thing they had in common. The Sadducees were very anti-anything supernatural. They believed in the Old Testament only as much as it contained the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe that God did supernatural acts or performed miracles. And they definitely didn't believe in the resurrection. So here's this group of people that are there. The, the priests and the captain of the temple are there. And then this other group of people, the Sadducees come upon them. And they're all kind of against the message of Jesus and, and, and what these disciples are trying to bring. And it says about this group in particular, about the Sadducees, they're greatly annoyed because they're teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the Sadducees are particularly annoyed because they don't believe in the resurrection. And they said, I can't believe Peter and John are preaching this message. And I can't believe that they're amassing a bunch of followers. Thousands of people are following, listening to this message. And they become greatly annoyed saying, we have to do something about this. I can't believe this group of people are buying into this bunk that these guys are proclaiming. Sounds a lot like people today. Sounds a lot of, like, like, the, like the, the world that's out there. A lot of the, I've read a lot this week on, on different viewpoints of different atheists and stuff. A lot of times they go out there and say, we've, we've advanced so much scientifically, we no longer need faith. And there's all these quotes that are out there about that. They sound strangely similar to the Sadducees. Of, of this day, they come, they said, I can't believe they're proclaiming the resurrection. We don't believe in that junk. How could they ever believe that? But they don't know what to do about it because they're amassing this, this following and they're proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And so they said, here's what we're going to do in verse 3. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So these leaders conspire together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We need to kind of dispel this crowd. We need to get rid of everybody. Let's just arrest them and put them in jail. And, and if we just put them in jail, it's too late to take care of anything tonight. Let's everybody go home and we'll deal with it tomorrow. In fact, we're going to bring in the head honchos tomorrow to take care of this. And so let's just kind of put them in jail. And this whole thing is going to die down and we'll pick it up again tomorrow morning. But they didn't ant- anticipate the next verse. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So you guys proclaiming the good news, the resurrection of Jesus, and they say, okay, let's put him in jail. And then after the fact, 5,000 people say, I'm going to choose to believe what they believe. Now, what would happen if, if we took on this mindset, if God was working like that, and we took on that mindset and say, man, let's go out and let's proclaim who Jesus is and see what happens. And, and tonight, 5,000 people got saved. What's next Sunday morning going to look like? Hey, everybody, come on in. We got room. <laughs> like, like, we'd run out of room real quickly, and we'd, we had all these things, all these problems would be good problems to have. Man, we would wear out the baptistry motor. And, and, like, that's what we want to see is that type of response. In the early church, they said, we don't know a whole lot about church. We know Jesus died and rose again. And that message is on our lips. And, man, people are getting saved even as they're being arrested for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The gospel does three things. First of all, the gospel is empowering. It's enlarging. We have no idea because of the witness of our words. We have no idea the power that is contained in our words for if our words contain the good news of who Jesus is. The gospel itself is empowering. We pick up the story. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So some of the leaders are there. But then it says this, with Annas, who is the high priest. So it's no longer the captain who was the second in command. It's Annas, who's the high priest, the head honcho. And Caiaphas, who is the former high priest. And John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. So the people who said, we weren't big enough to take care of this. Let's call in the big dogs. For sure, the high priest is going to take care of this. He's going to squash all of this. They're the ones who are going to be responsible for this whole thing now. So they call in Annas, they call in Caiaphas and say, you guys handle this. And he's, they're in the midst of the high priestly family. And they bring, in, they bring in Peter and John. It says, when they set them in the midst, they inquired and asked this question. By what power or by what name did you do this? What's the this? See, there's one event that precipitated all of this that we're reading. Back in Acts chapter 3, there's a story about a man that was born unable to walk. And in his day, what they would do is they'd take him out, outside of the gate. And this particular man was taken outside of the gate of the city in Jerusalem. And the, the, the gate is called the Beautiful Gate. And, and he would be carried out there on a daily basis to beg of the people, to beg alms of the people. And, and he would come, and his whole job all day long was to beg, hey, can you help me out? Can you give me some money? Can you help out? Can you give me some money? And so he's out there, and he's begging of them. And Peter and John, these two disciples, come. And sometimes we hear these stories because of our context. We, we know, okay, there's power in the New Testament and Jesus and all that stuff. And so sometimes we miss this. But for Peter and John, this was all new. They'd seen Jesus perform these miracles, but they themselves had never been part of that apostolic authority and all that, that comes with it. And so Peter and John are coming upon this man. And they see him, and he starts begging of them. And Peter looks at him, and it says that Peter gets his gaze, and John does as well, and they're both intently focused on this guy. And Peter responds, he says, Silver and gold have I none. But the name of Jesus rise up and walk. And the guy did. And then after that, they go out and they start preaching. This guy is with them saying, man, this, the, the, he's testifying to what they did. And, and it's all this New Testament power and apostolic authority. And he's walking with them and they're sharing the good news. And because everybody in the city knew, I know who that guy is. He's out front of the gate every day. Everybody starts gathering around saying, how is it that that took place? And because of that, they start proclaiming who Jesus is. And that starts to be this uprising and thousands of people start to watch and so at this point, after the fact, they're, they're preaching and they're proclaiming the message. For the second time, Peter's actually out in front of the temple. And as he's proclaiming this, the high priest calls him in and says, Okay, by what power or by whose name did you do this? Like Peter and John, that was a good trick, but, but how did you make that happen? And watch this, because the, the gospel is, is powerful, it's empowering, but the gospel is also emboldening. It gives us boldness. Peter, who only months earlier had been the one who denied Jesus during the resurrection, or during the crucifixion. He said, I don't know who he is. This guy who had no boldness. Watch the boldness of, of Peter here. Then Peter, it says, very important, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? If that's why we're being examined let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. So all of you leaders that are part of this, but also all the rulers of Israel, everybody, all the people of Israel, let, me, let, let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, the boldness of Peter, 
Peter earlier, when a couple of people who aren't even part of the crucifixion scene asked him, weren't you hanging with Jesus? He said, no, I don't know who that is. But here Jesus is standing, or Peter is standing before the high priest who is responsible for the death of Jesus. He says, you want to know who it was that raised that guy from the dead? It was by the power of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And he points his finger at them and he gets his boldness. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It is by his power that this man has been raised to walk. And then he continues on. And he says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. The very people who should have known this. He's been been, been rejected by the builders, but he has become the chief cornerstone. And he says, we'll get into this a little bit later, and there's salvation. He starts talking about the salvation of Jesus. But he says, if you want to know by whose power it was that Jesus has been raised from the dead, this man has been raised from the dead, it's by the power of Jesus whom you crucified, who God ultimately raised from the dead. That's how this guy can now walk. And he says, he, he starts to get this boldness. He starts to have this confidence. He's not walking alone. He's not doing this thing alone. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. And he gains this boldness that he never knew that he had. So the gospel is empowering. The gospel is emboldening. I can't tell you the number of times I went into a situation. When I started to learn the, the idea, we'll get to in a second, about personal evangelism. There are times I went into situations where, man, I was scared. I said, God, I, I don't think I can do this. But I started to pray. say, God, your spirit speak to and through me and allow me to do this. The gospel itself gives us boldness. But the last thing, the gospel is also exclusive. The last verse says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the gospel is empowering, it's emboldening, but it's also exclusive. Peter's proclaiming this message. He says, listen, outside of Jesus, there's no way in the world anybody can be saved. It's only through Jesus. It's only through his sacrifice, through his dying on a cross, that we can be saved. And so as he starts to explain who Jesus is, he says, here's how I want to lift him up. A couple, of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw this video. It's an older video, but it's posted on Facebook recently. And there's a video where Larry King is on the old Larry King Live program, and he's interviewing a bunch of pastors. And there's one guy who is very well-spoken and very verbose. And, and Larry started to pointedly ask him some questions. He says, he says, you believe in the message of Christianity? And the pastor says, yes, I do. And he says, and you believe that Christianity is right? He says, yes, I believe it's right for me. And right away, Larry, being the inquisitor that he is, says, wait a minute, what do you mean for, for you? Isn't it right for everybody? And he started to explain away really what the gospel's about. He started to say, well, I believe that my God is big enough and that he's broad enough to love all of his children. And we can name different names, but, but ultimately I believe that God is a big God and can love everybody. And there's another pastor on the panel who I respect greatly. And that pastor said, wait a minute, sir. And he started to interrupt him, and he starts to have this conversation on Larry King Live. And he says, okay, if what you're saying is true, then why did Jesus say some of the things that he said? And he started bringing out scripture just like this and says, what about this idea that it says in Acts chapter 4, there's salvation in no one else, that in no other name can salvation come, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. So when he speaks the word to this guy that's unable to walk, he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk is because of the power of his name, not because of the power of the, of the apostle. When he, when, he, when he says there's only salvation in the name of Jesus, he says there is an exclusive claim. It is for nobody else. And so if we believe that, if we believe the heart of the gospel, then it changes you and I as believers. Like if we believe the heart of the gospel, if we care about the heart of the gospel, we share the message of the gospel. 
That's for you and I. Like if, if really, if God has come in, if he has changed my life, if we care about the heart of the gospel, we have to share the message of the gospel. Those two things have to come hand in hand. So how do we do that? I want to spend some time asking a question. How do we do that? How do we start to give? Because a, a vision, we talk about vision all we want, but unshared vision isn't really vision. I can put vision on a piece of paper, say, here's the vision of Ridge Point Church. But if we're not trying to accomplish it together, if we're not galvanized behind that vision, it's not vision. So how do we do that? Who's qualified to do that? Everyone, if you would, real quick, stand up with me, real quick. This will be real short, but stand up with me. we got to wake up. It's been a, kind of rainy out, looking rainy out, so everyone's kind of slowly getting up. But, but if you can stand up, if not, that's fine. But if you can stand up, we're going to see today who's qualified. If, 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 you can, if you can speak at all, stay standing. If not, you can sit down. Okay, awesome. You're qualified still. Uh, second thing, if you know somebody who's not in church this morning at all, you can stay standing. All right, awesome. Everybody's qualified. You can sit down. I just want to make sure, because if not, we'd let you go. <laughs> the point is, like, it doesn't take a, a PhD in theology. It doesn't take, like, really knowing a whole lot of Bible. It just is, man, saying, I, want, I know that Jesus delivered me, and I want to share that message with people around me. That's it. That's all it takes. So how do we do that? There's, there's really three steps, and each one gets a little bit more confrontational, a little bit less easy. Uh, the first thing is we can simply invite people to church. There's nothing wrong with this. I don't want to belittle that. Uh, when we invite people to church, it's relatively non-confrontational. Uh, there are a lot of ways we can do that. We can do it through a personal invitation. We can do it through social media. Uh, from time to time, we have invitation cards, and we say, if you want to invite someone to church, if you're out getting lunch, you want to add this to your tip, put a card down, invite people to church. It's very non-confrontational. Most of my friends, if I go up to them, whether they're church going or not, if I, if I invite them to church, whether they accept or not, doesn't really matter as much as they're, most people reply and say, hey, thank you for inviting me. It's not for confrontational, but also for what I've seen is not effective. Most of us probably have a few hundred friends that are on social media, on Facebook or whatever, and we can post an invitation on social media and say, hey, if you want to join me at church next Sunday, feel free to join me. And we might on occasion have one or two people that take up that challenge, but it's not confrontational, but it's also not the most effective way. So we build up to the next step, and the next step's a little bit more confrontational. And not that, not that we want to be confrontational ourselves, but the message of the gospel is uh, at times confrontational. But when we move from inviting someone to bringing someone to church, there's, there's a difference there. See, I can invite someone, it's not confrontational, but if I bring someone, if I'm truly about building a relationship and bringing someone to church, I say the process that you go through when you come to church is really important. And it's challenging. Maybe it's been a long time since you were a new person at church. Maybe it's been a long time since you are a new person at this church. And you walk in and you know where everything is and you know how everything kind of happens and when to stand up and when to sit down. But for someone who's brand new, that challenge is, is sometimes a daunting task. And they say, I don't know what, I'm, what to expect. I don't know if I'm going to be judged when I walk through the door. I don't know what I'm going to go through. And so when I say bring someone to church, it's more than just inviting someone and saying, hey, if you want to show up, if you don't want to show up, that's fine. It's saying, hey, I believe in what Jesus is doing. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. And if you want to come to church with me this Sunday, man, I'll meet you out front. I'll help you navigate the maze that is the church. I'll sit with you during the service so you don't feel alone. Like It's not just about inviting someone to church and saying, I want to go the next step. Because invitations don't often work. But when we build up a relationship and we bring someone to church, we bring someone to Jesus, uh, there's, there's so much more of a personal relationship that takes place that it's much, much more effective. When we care about the heart of the gospel, we start to share the message of the gospel. 
So we want to be able to invite people to church. We want to be able to bring people to church, but also we want to be able to personally share our story. So it's by invitation, it's by kind of building and bringing, but it's also by personal evangelism, by, by sharing our story. Listen, uh, we're, I'm going to listen to excuses for a second, but, but the early church, all they did was they said, listen, I know what Jesus has done, and I want to share that with the people around us. And we live in a culture where it seems like we're kind of shying away from that, like that seems offensive in our culture. And so for a lot of us, we've taken uh, the approach to say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my thing, and, and we're going to sit here and be happy with the group that we have and never really want to reach people. And I understand why, because it is a little bit of an intimidating situation. But here's the thing, as we start to list these excuses, I'm going to give a response to each one of the excuses and say sometimes we are simply looking for an excuse to not do what we're supposed to do, and I include myself in that picture. See, the number one excuse that I hear when people say, well, I don't often share my faith is because, well, I don't feel like I know enough of the Bible. Like, like it, if eternity's in a balance and it's up to my words, like I'm afraid I'd mess something up, so I'd rather leave that up to the experts. And I understand, like I understand how intimidating that is, But again, when we read the history of the New Testament church, when the gospel changes from being mostly going to the Jewish people to to now going with the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, they didn't grow up knowing the Bible. They didn't have a lot of scripture memorized. All they knew is, man, Jesus was dead and he's alive and I believe that message and I believe that message is really important for the world around us. And all they had was the power of their story and they shared that story and thousands of people came to know Jesus. Why? Simply because of their story. I'm not saying don't start to learn some of the Bible and don't learn some of the scripture you can use. That's a good thing. But the power isn't in scripture. The power isn't even in our testimony. The power is in who Jesus is and in his name. So if we use that excuse, the early church, they didn't have that either. They didn't have a lot of Bible background. The second excuse I often hear is, well, that's simply too confrontational. That no longer works anymore. People don't like that. Like we're taught, we're not supposed to talk about two things. What are they? Politics and religion. Don't ever talk about those things. We live in a culture where everyone says that. And I get that because sometimes we we approach this and it is exclusive. And what do people think about that? But the more that I've seen and and, and the more I've seen of this world and, and people who really have these type of conversations, the more I say, if this is the heart of what we believe, then we can't help but share. And sometimes when we share, you're going to turn some people off. But there are others that because you share are going to be very receptive, even when they don't believe or accept the message, they're going to be very receptive to what you're trying to accomplish. How many know who Penn and Teller are? I love watching some stuff they do. They're incredibly talented. And, and especially Penn, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Now, philosophically, I agree with him on almost every point. But I have this utmost respect. He's a very brilliant person. He's a deep thinker. And he's a very conscientious person for what I've seen. I don't know him personally, but from what I've seen, I, I believe that's true. But I was doing some research for this, and I found this quote that he had. And I want to read this to you. Here's the quote. I love evangelicals. One of the things I learned doing Penn and Teller, and there's a bad word we had to white out there, <laughs> but Penn and Teller on Showtime for all those years is that Christians are, are really good. They're really good people. You notice there wasn't an anti-Muslim show that we ever did. We did a bunch of anti-Christian shows. That is the biggest, biggest compliment I can give. The fact that Christians will really believe, American Christians will really, really believe in the marketplace of ideas. And I love the fact that there are people who talk to me after the show and pray for me and give me Bibles. And then he says this, and this is profound, this is why we have this up here. I never understand the atheists that say it's okay as long as they shut up. They believe that there's eternal life. They believe you can be saved. 
what could be more hateful than shutting up? And here's a guy, even as an unbeliever, who says, man, he gets it. He says, if we actually believe in eternal life, if we believe that we can be saved, and we believe this is the message of the gospel, and then we shut up and say, man, I'm not going to share that, though. He says, there's nothing more hateful than that. Like, if you actually believe that and you shut up, then that's a hateful act. Sharing it is not hateful. I know our culture might not always agree with Penn, but I believe his words are point on, man, that is on us. And if we don't share, then our actions, then our words themselves are hateful. The final objection is that if I were to evangelize, if I was going to do this, I'd feel like I was all alone. Peter, when he begins this, this sermon he's preaching, says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of times in church we don't talk about the Holy Spirit's role in our life enough. Peter comes and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts to proclaim this good news and he was never alone. The one who had no boldness before becomes the, the bold proclaimer of this message. So when we go in those conversations with people. We say, I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to be alone. And so we begin by prayer. Praying, God, be with me. Teach me what I'm supposed to say. God, my words. And then we're sensitive in that conversation, amidst that conversation, how do I begin to share? When I was a young youth pastor, I didn't, hadn't gone to church a whole lot growing up, and so I didn't know a whole lot about how things worked. I used to go into the sessions with students, giving them advice and counsel. And, and I'd pray before I went in saying, God, I'm not even sure what I'm going to deal with here. Uh, but God, give me the words because I'm not sure I'm going to answer. And, and looking back 10 years later, I look back at some of those initial conversations and say, man, it, it was amazing the, the advice that I gave because I didn't really understand at that point a whole lot. And I look back and say, I wasn't wise enough. I wasn't smart enough to make up some of those things, but I could see God's spirit kind of guiding some of those words when I didn't know what to say. So you enter into a conversation where you're scared, where you're intimidated, where you're not sure it's gonna, how it's going to go, and you begin with a, with a prayer yourself with God, saying, God, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to take place here, but God, please be with me, and please guide my words. And you simply begin that conversation. You begin building and bringing. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us, the church? How does all this start to fit into our church a couple of weeks ago, probably a little bit over a month ago, I got a text message from someone. I was impressed by who texted as much as the content of this text. But they reminded me that back in the beginning of this year, we launched out in the end of last year at Vision 2020. We started to talk about that. And I said, for us to begin to accomplish that vision this year, there were four things that we had to have. And here's the text message that I got, a picture that I got of what they had on their phone. RPC goals for 2016. Number one, that we'd have a youth pastor. Now, Josh was here first service. We pointed him out and said, okay, Josh, you didn't even know, but you're goal number one. Goal number two for those who joined us at the beginning of the year was Ridge Fit. Goal number three was, was Fight Club, which we just finished up our first semester, and the second one is coming quickly. And goal number four was 250 people, in particular 250 adults, regularly attending Ridge Point Church. We've, we've accomplished three of the four so far, and now it's time for us to start working on the fourth. And the only way we start to do that is by building relationships and bringing people to Jesus, building relationships and bringing people to Jesus, building relationships and bringing people to Jesus. Now, the crazy thing is that as we kind of prepared for that, as we kind of looking through that, I normally, I either normally don't have dreams or normally don't remember my dreams. Uh, but last night I was kind of getting ready and I woke up this morning. I realized I must have woke up like right in the middle of this dream. Uh, but as I woke up in the middle of the dream, I remembered distinctly and clearly. We were in a church that looked much like this only the, the rows were straighter. They weren't kind of angled like they are, and they were like straight back. 
And I walked in, I remember distinctly it was a 9 a.m. service. And we walked out, and every row was, was packed with people. And I'm, I just remember thinking, like, this doesn't even look like our church, but it is. It's kind of weird. But, like, it's 9 a.m. I mean, it's like, it's like school happened. Everybody got back on their schedule. Everybody's here. Like, it was really cool. And I woke up. And I'm like, oh, that, that was just a dream. But I don't think it has to be just that dream. Like, I think realistically with what we have here, that that is entirely possible. Now, if we include kids and everything, we're already at that. But we want to see us on a regular basis reach 250 people. Now, I neglected to mention this in the first service, but I want to mention this to you, and we'll have to catch them back up on this. But to start to get us towards that goal, uh, we're going to come up. We're going to finish up the series. More stuff we're going to talk about. Keep inviting people to church. It doesn't mean do, don't do that between now and then. But then our next series, we get ready to launch out. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, in particular, a big weekend for us is going to be September 11th. Uh, that weekend, it's, it falls on a Sunday this year. And on that September, as things kind of get rolling with the new series and groups and all that stuff, we're going to kind of eye that and say, man, we want that to be kind of our, our fan day. In fact, we're going to challenge you guys in the coming weeks. Uh, for that day, you can wear, like, it's going to be a fun day. It's a kickoff for, for the NFL season. There's all that stuff that's going to be taking place. You can actually wear the jersey of your favorite sports team, NFL, college, pro. One of the staff members, as we had this discussion, said, can they wear a Quidditch jersey? I don't even know what that is. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not qualified to answer that question, but I said, if they want to, absolutely. Some people aren't laughing because they don't even get that either. I'm with you. Uh, but, but we're just going to have a fun day that Sunday and try to reach out towards that goal. Not just doing it on one Sunday, but continuing that on. So just know that that's coming as, as our goal is to reach people. And it's not just about a fun day. It's about saying, man, we believe that Jesus has forever changed our life, and we want to see him change lives of others around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Uh, your graciousness in your life. But God, I also thank you for your call. You've called us not to be silent. In fact, your word tells us that if we're silent, the rocks are going to cry out. God, I don't want a rock to cry out of my place. I, I, I want to be consistent in, in sharing the great news of what you've done in my life. To the world that's all around us, it needs to know the hope that's found in Jesus. And so God, I pray that we would galvanize around that mission together as a church. God, for the person this morning who's accepted Jesus, who says, I already believe in him. God, I pray that this message would be a reminder of why we believe. And that God also would be a reminder of how we have to use that as the propelling force behind our life and the vision we have individually and as a church. But God, I also believe as we proclaim the message of the gospel. God, I believe there might be people in here this morning that, that aren't at that spot yet. And maybe something was said this morning through the message as we lift up the name Jesus. Something was said that clicked in someone's mind. And said, I'm now ready to make that decision. I'm now ready to truly follow Jesus. God, whether it's one person or two people or five people this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would speak directly to their heart right now. Convict them of their faults and their mistakes. Thank God they'd call upon Jesus these high priests put to death, but God, who you raised up. God, I pray they'd call on Jesus this morning for the very first time to come to their life, to save them, to forgive them of their sins, and to assure them a spot in heaven with you. God, let this be the day, let now be the moment that they truly give their lives to him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.